The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Public sector borrowing in the UK last month was £27.4 billion, the highest December number since records began. It surprised the government, it seems, and Jeremy Hunt reportedly will use it as a reason to delay any form of tax cuts in the upcoming budget. So, less money for people to spend, and presumably as the Chancellor tries to claw back that deficit, less spending by the government. Well, that sounds like bad news for possibly the slowest growing economy in the OECD, with a recession now, well, almost a certainty. But what if the government was to just spend its way out of it all and not worry too much about that debt number? After all, that's what Keynes advocated as the way out of recessions, pump, prime the economy, pay the debt back later. But maybe you don't even need to bother to pay it back. Modern monetary theorists say there's no reason governments don't keep spending when they need to without the constraints of balancing the budget. How does that work? We find out this week on The Y Curve. The Y Curve. So what on earth is modern monetary theory? Well, I mean, we'll find out today, but I mean... It no, is, but you've it's, got an idea, haven't well, you? Well, yeah, well, the, the idea is that, uh, you know, there's, we don't want to be constrained. Money is a constraint, and it shouldn't be. Resources are the constraint. So if you've got spare resources, whether it's capital or people, then you should be able to make use of those. And if there's not enough money in the private sector then the public sector should facilitate that by creating the spending, by creating the money to facilitate the use of those resources. So it's not thinking of money as being the constraint, it's the resources. Yeah, it's, it's where, where you said create the money there that my, my little hackles <laughs> Easily rose. done. Well, Easily you know, done. I mean, yes, get, set the printing presses rolling and all the rest well, of it. Well, do you know that happens all the time? I mean, banks create money. Every time they give a loan, banks create, you know, private banks create money, uh, which is used to, you know, fund your house that you buy. So, yeah. I mean, it's 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 all it's doing is saying this is in the same way. But look, the perspective, just a perspective on yeah. and we'll, we'll, we'll discuss this because it yeah, is yeah, interesting. Yeah. And look, you know, and there's two camps, two fierce camps on this. One that's just saying it is, it's free money and it's going to be hyperinflationary. Yeah. And then there are the modern monetary theorists who say that, you know, we, we are creating a scarcity that doesn't need to exist in the, mm. in the economy. So we'll, tr- we'll try and get to the bottom of it with Francis Coppola in just a second. Just to give some perspective on that public sector borrowing number, though, it's a net number, 27.4 billion. That's about half what it was in April and May when, when the start of the pandemic, when, of course, government spending went crazy. But December 2019, three years ago, before the pandemic, it was 6.3 billion. So tiny in comparison. Yeah, we're at 27.4 and it was yeah. 6.3 then. So well, we had, so it is yeah. mushroom. So the government really is splashing cash right now. And this is, you know, so, and a so, modern so monetary... actually doing modern monetary theory Well, a anyway. modern monetary theorist would say this is great. Mm, you know, mm. we, uh, if, the, if they would... And imagine... If they weren't doing that right now, if imagine if the government said, well, we can't spend this money, we can't subsidise, uh, you know, your, your heating uh, bills, we can't uh, give the support to industry that's required. If they did, you know, if they weren't doing that, then all that money would be pulled out of the economy. Mm. Well, but then on the other hand, what people will say was, hang on a second, there is a balance to be struck here, mm. because the fact is, we are in a bit of a mess, we're heading into a recession, almost certainly, and we already have been splashing the cash. So yep. in a way, it doesn't really all add up. Up unless we simply declare, well, it's not really a recession. Well, the only reason it doesn't add up is because we think if we've spent this money, we've got to pay it back, doesn't it? And ah. you know, and that's and then and and if we delay paying it back, then we've got interest. And if you look actually out of that figure uh, for December, that twenty seven point four billion is a is a net figure. The actual government spending was ninety nine and a half billion. Uh, Pounds, so right. that's easy. Let's just call it a hundred. Hundred billion, yeah. Hundred billion, because it's easy to work out the percentages. Then, so 
interest payments on that on the, out of that were 17.3 billion so yeah. seven so 17 percent even you'd figure yes. that out yes 17 percent of all the money that was spent was interest payments on money that the government had borrowed right and Which, interest rates are relatively low of course still yeah. despite being higher than they were but here's the crazy thing though if when you get to the stage where we had quantitative easing oh thing we can explore today the difference yes. between quantitative easing and modern monetary theory well that's creating money isn't it well, well yeah but i mean the government is creating the money anyway but mm. if, but if you if uh, if the government issues bonds and then the central bank buys those bonds mm. uh, and then the, the government is paying interest on those bonds it's actually paying the interest to the central bank which is actually right. owned by the government yeah so it goes around and around in circles yeah which is nice and easy so, so there's an element of something called confidence I can't help feeling could be an issue in all this as of course as we, we saw, saw during Liz, uh, well, Liz Trust you remember that moment in time and, uh, and that is a very good question yeah. because why were we so happy to almost embrace modern monetary theory and see government spending going crazy those, those numbers I gave you when we went spending crazy during the pandemic and yet we uh, we get Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng coming along and saying well you know we want to cut tax mm. and increase government spending to try and get growth which is a very Keynesian idea mm. uh, almost modern monetary theory in its approach you might, you might argue why did the markets go crazy on that well look and so all of those are good questions so let's get to the let's get down to it let's all talk right. to Frances Coppola she's a financial writer she has worked for many banks so she understands retail and investment banks uh, working in finance and risk management she understands the way the system works and she's an advocate of mmt or modern monetary theory one of her books is the case for people's quantitative easing and uh, she joins us now so francis the reason why we wanted to talk to you today was because of that high public sector borrowing number that we saw for december so is that a good thing or a bad thing i, I imagine that as a modern monetary theorist you'd say well gov- more government well, spending I, is a good thing isn't before it? we dive into that can i just jump in and <laughs> say could you actually just francis briefly give us a sense of what modern monetary theory is well i'm 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 a, I'm a, maybe a ninety percent advocate for modern monetary theory. There are some right. things in the theory that I don't agree with, um, but for the purposes of this discussion, what, what modern monetary theory basically says is that the the government deficit is the uh, the net saving of the private sector. That's simply a matter of accounting. So broadly speaking, the bigger the govern- government deficit is, the more um, safe financial assets in the form of um, you know cash and, and treasury bills and things like that, um, the private sector can save. Um, and therefore, the more it can spend too. So there is mm. potentially a connection between large government deficits and inflation. And we can talk about that in a bit. Um, mm-hmm. But in theory, that's the point. But the limit- So fundamentally, debt yeah. is good. De- debt is fine. Debt is fine. Government, well, government debt. Government debt. Government debt. Um, we, we, tend to, we tend to, unfortunately, tend, tend to see government debt in, in terms of kind of credit cards and things like that. And it's actually not very like that. Um, government debt um, accumulated simply represents the amount of um, money that the private sector is is saving, is accumulating. So it's a bit of a balancing act. Um, so the limit, the limit on what on the amount of debt that governments can have is actually set by um, the performance of the economy, not by any absolute number. Right. So you're, it's so. Are you saying then? So if, if I mean fundamentally, if the government spends more, then more money is finding its way into 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 the private sector because ultimately yeah. that's where they spend it. 
I mean, they're, they, they, don't, they don't spend... They, and thereby generates growth, I suppose, is the obvious it, point. We are a little bit in quantity theory of money territory here. It's not quite MMT, where we can say uh, there is a limit to the amount of money you can keep putting into the economy because eventually you hit constraints, and those constraints are real resource constraints. They are the actual capacity of the economy to grow. And there are a number of indicators of that. One is how many real resources do you have? Do you have binding constraints, for example, on your energy supplies, which affects your 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 business's ability to, to produce things and sell things? Um, do you have real restrictions on the number of people you have available to work? Because if you do, there's going to be a limit on the um, ability of the economy to grow. Both of those things... Um, limit the amount of growth that can be generated by simply putting money into the economy when you so is that why quasi you end up with inflation right is that why quasi Kwarteng got into so much trouble then because he was saying well we are going to uh, increase government spending we're going to cut taxation we're going to grow the economy yeah. but everyone was looking and going well hang on a second who's going to do that because we we don't have a great deal of energy and also we've got very low unemployment so there's yeah, just not the resources that's exactly that it that, uh, whereas i think had he done that a couple of years ago two or three years mm. ago it would have been fine people would have said yeah absolutely um we have um people who need better jobs and we have we didn't at that time have binding resource constraints we didn't have uh, messed up supply chains um and we didn't have excruciatingly high energy costs um it might have been a good thing to do in fact there's an argument and i have been making this argument um you know that we should have been doing that really ever since the financial crisis because it took the economy ages to get back on its feet again and a lot of the reason for that was that we were constantly taking money out of the economy in order to fix the deficit and yeah we were doing the exact opposite we were doing the austerity is the exact opposite really yeah, isn't it and i think we've discovered now just how damaging austerity was it it loved us in so many ways but now and so in a way, what Trust and Quartin wanted to do would have been the right medicine, perhaps in 2010 or even in 2015 or even in 2019. But in 2022, when we had energy costs he- heading for the skies because of the Ukraine war, when we had supply chains disrupted all over the place because of the legacy of the pandemic, and when we had a tight labour market, um, partly because of people leaving the labour market and partly also because we've cut immigration, uh, um, we're restricting immigration in many ways, um, we don't have that capacity to put lots of money into the economy now. If we do, we end up with inflation. Well, let me make a small point on the side of austerity. It's a weird hat for me to wear, but the point, I suppose, is sound money. That phrase, the idea that we give confidence if we if we cut back on spending, if we don't spend more than we've got, that the outside world, the investors, the markets will have confidence in us and therefore will continue to lend us money on reasonable terms. I mean, that still has to be a basic rule, doesn't it? And it's the general understanding, isn't it, of economics, that it's built on scarcity. So it sort of fits quite nicely, doesn't it, that money isn't readily available. So you've got to make tough decisions, which, you know, sound like an MP now. I could almost be prime minister. We've got to make the tough decisions based on the money we have available. It's not true if the government Mm. is the issuer of the money. So there isn't an intrinsic scarcity. The scarcity is set by what can you do with that money. And any Mm. company would recognise this, that if you clamp down on your investments so much that you only ever spend money that you've earned – you never borrowed to invest, um, then you don't grow. Um, and that's exactly what happens to a, a country that only ever 
spends what it earns, either can take either in taxation or in um, overseas earnings, and never borrows to invest. It's limited in how much it. But so, but a government, so a company borrows. But a government doesn't have to. I mean, we think of it in terms of, of borrowing, don't we, for a government? So that uh, that massive figure uh, that the government was supposedly in debt for in December, uh, what was it? I think we said 17% of it, didn't we? So is actually 70% it, it, you said is, was, is the was payment on interest because we look upon that as money that has been borrowed. Well, um, it rather depends who's holding your debt. If your debt is primarily owned by your own citizens and your own institutions, then the interest you're paying is simply a, a transfer. It's for, an, for individuals, for households, it's a tax credit. And for investors, you know, it, uh, corporate investors, yeah, it's arguably corporate welfare, and we can have a talk about that. There is an argument, in my view, on uh, for imposing windfall taxes on banks, for example, who are doing rather nicely out of this. Uh, that, that would be politically very uh, acceptable, yeah. I suspect. Um, it's a political argument, but if you don't want to give those kind of um, tax transfers to corporations and banks, then tax them. You know, this is a fairly straightforward discussion. But isn't a fair chunk of our debt held externally? Is aren't there big institutions, big banks, Wall Street that that holds quite a lot of what we we owe, and that actually can pull the plug and might well do so because we owe it externally, uh, overseas? You mean? Up, yeah, up to a point. But actually, most of our debt is not held externally because it's sterling. It's de- it's denominated by people who want sterling. So, mm. actually, the big one of the risks for. Um, the UK is not so much the uh, whether um, people will reject hard debts because uh, as a last resort, the Bank of England can always buy it. You know, the Bank of England holds quite a lot of our debt, actually. Um, the big risk is that actually people will not want to use sterling anymore. And, and that's always the risk for a sovereign currency issuer is that if they overdo it, if they issue more debt or more money than the economy can absorb, then the exchange rate will fall. So Rishi Sunak could be there saying, well, OK, you know, that 100 billion, uh, that that figure, the, the amount that we spend in December, uh, well, I quite like that. I'm going to spend 120 billion in, in January and uh, we and, and, and pay the nurses and the doctors. Everyone, and all yeah, the rest exactly. of We're going to sort out all of all of that money so that they and of course, all those doctors and nurses then will have more money. So that right. money gets spent in the economy mm-hmm. on the local economy spread geographically around, yeah. you know, not concentrated in the southeast. Sounds like a, you know, a sensible way forwards. I mean, is that, but would that create, is that, are we hitting any resource constraints on that? Could that create inflation or is that a good thing? Well, it rather depends what you're going to spend your money on. Uh, mm. So the reason why Trust and Quarting got into difficulties was because they were proposing tax cuts. They were, yeah. um, and handouts of what sort of, of that sort of thing. And although they were going for growth, it was not at all clear how those, that the way they were distributing that money would stimulate growth. It wasn't that clear. Um, I think, um, but if you can loosen some of the constraints on the economy, for example, if by spending some money, you can shorten your waiting lists and get some of the people who are stuck on those waiting lists back into work again, or if you can do something about your social care so you haven't got millions of women, older women leaving the workforce to care for relatives, or if you can, you know, then then you're doing something about the constraints on your economy that stop it growing. There are- or you pay teachers who then teach the next generation who are coming up 
up who actually will be part of an educated workforce that will improve growth. Yeah, so there's a productivity there's, there's a productivity gain. Yeah, yeah, there's absolutely a strong argument for investing in public services. I saw a, a report by of all people, Standard and Poor's. I mean, a credit rating agency um, a few years ago now, arguing that what we call the fiscal multiplier, which is the um, amount of growth you can get really for every one pound you spend into uh, the government spends into the economy economy was something like 2.5 which is really very high and their argument was that it, that was mostly because of roads that we spend so much time sitting in traffic jams that it's a massive hit to productivity and we really really need to invest in our transport networks we still haven't done this. So we're still sitting in traffic jams and we still haven't got train train services that properly serve the whole country. And we still haven't got proper bus services and, you know, all these other things. And so we've still got a productivity drain because people because people and goods and services can't move. But if, if the government was to spend 120 or 140 billion in a month rather than 20 or 80, uh, what does that do to the private sector? Does it help the private sector or does it take money away from the the private sector? How does that balance, that sectoral balance between public and private change the more that the public sector spends? I've often heard this argument that what when the public sector spends, that crowds out yeah. private sector investments because um, instead of putting money into productive private sector investment, investors will put money into public sector investment, effectively will buy government debt instead. In actual fact, if you look at how investors construct their portfolios, government debt is hugely important. And when you haven't got enough of it, it causes all sorts of strains and difficulties. It acts like an anchor, a, a, a hedge in their portfolios and therefore actually enables them to take on riskier assets. So there is actually an important role for the public sector in what we might call priming the pump. When uh, when investors are really scared and flying to cash and safe assets, um, there, there is, uh, the, the public sector actually needs to step in and invest because the private sector either isn't going to or is going to wait for the public sector to step in first because then they feel more confident about doing so. But so it, I don't entirely buy the crowding out arg- argument. I think it very much depends upon the on the state that we're in. And when everything's very uncertain and the outlook is quite gloomy, there's actually quite a strong case for public spending actually to to encourage investors to uh, private sector investors to invest as well. But isn't part of that crowding out argument that, uh, you know, for, say, for example, the government was saying, well, OK, we're going to build a, a heap new a heap of new railways. Uh, mm. then no one's going to invest in railways themselves because they know the government's going to step in to do that. So I, I know, for example, in, in, in Australia, the government stepped in to build the, the, the broadband network and it completely mm. dried up investment in the telecommunications industry because everyone thought, well, there's no point. You can't compete with the government. They're spending all the money in this sector. So then you get less private sector investment and that private sector investment is innovation isn't it you're probably going to get more innovation coming from the private sector than you are from the public sector there's actually not a great deal of evidence for that that is one of the myths that gets spread by neoliberals um actually when you look at it if you look at the work of mariana mascata for example she produced produced a strong case for really early stage innovation um actually coming from the public sector i'd have to say that nasa is a particularly good example of this there's so even the internet that we take for granted 
Um, Comes to, exa- exactly. Was that was that actually? A, yeah, it was a public sector invention. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, Absolutely. But also, um, the public yeah. sector, when it buys things, when it has the money to do it, where do they buy it from? They, they they need suppliers. They need people to produce the stuff they're going to actually put into whatever it is they're building. So it is a a pump primer anyway. Absolutely. So, you know, we want both public and private sector investment. We, should, we don't want one or the other. That, mm. That's my view. And the, when the public sector gets involved, they can take risks that the private sector actually can't or won't, which is why we see um, defence actually is an important one, but other things too, can be really, really innovative and risk-taking in the public sector um, developments. Um, and then the private sector comes in later and finds other ways, innovative ways of deploying the things that have been invented in the first case, maybe as kind of part of so, a, a defence programme. So given, given uh, all this that we've, we've said and, and, and the virtues of, of public spending and, and the, the, the reasons not to be worried about it, how come Jeremy Hunt, Rishi Sunak, both of them pretty well versed in the ways of, of finance, are holding back so much from this? I mean, they obviously were scared by what happened with yeah. Liz Truss. But, but from what you're saying, the confidence issue, which was really the core of that problem, won't necessarily be one if they, if they move in this road. And, and by the way, I'm not a neoliberal. Uh, so he is. Uh, he is <laughs> I'm just playing the devil's advocate. He's actually tattooed on the back of his neck, if you look a- really closely. A- anyone who listens to the podcast I do with Steve Keen, he treat knows that's, that's not the case. Just being the devil's advocate. But on this, the protagonists, oh. uh, like Larry Summers, for example, saying it's not true that governments can simply create new money to pay all liabilities coming due and avoid default as the experience of any number of emerging markets emerging markets limited resources of course demonstrates past a certain point this approach leads to hyperinflation and we hear that a great deal don't we the mmt equals hyperinflation i'm not quite sure yet either we've fully defined hyperinflation or uh, uh, MMT sorry all we've done so far is basically said yes government should be able to spend as much i mean there's probably a bit more to it than that isn't there yeah, I mean, uh, pure MMT includes things like a job guarantee mm. um, on the basis that um, um, you uh, don't risk inflation until every until your uh, uh, your um, population workforce yeah. have yeah. have jobs. Um, everybody who wants a job has one, so they have a private se- a public sector job guarantee on the grounds that um, actually keeping people idle isn't particularly helpful and ultimately if it goes too far it's inflationary which is true yeah um but, but it's it, it a tight labour market, the whole problem that we've got at the moment in yeah. terms of pushing up wages. So that kind of works against that, that actually a job for all would actually push up inflation. It's, it is and it isn't. Um, I mean, we, we do have a tight labour market and we, ha- we actually have job short- um, shortages, mm. in, particularly in some public sector areas, which is actually why we have strikes is that the government is not allowing the natural forces of supply and demand in the labour market in the public sector to do their job. Because they're not no, paying, they're not paying them enough, in, in effect. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. If, if you look at how a labour market, I mean, it's microeconomics, this isn't MMT, this is basic microeconomics like Adam Smith used to do, mm. right? It's saying the law of supply and demand, a labour market, in a labour market, is if, you, if there aren't enough workers... Um, then employers have to pay more to attract the workers they, that there are. They have to compete with each other in order to attract workers. Yeah, and um, that's not rocket science. And we've seen the, the, the yeah. private sector wage growth way higher, multiple mm. times. The, the, the and growth we have in the actually sector. seen people leaving sectors like the care sector mm. to work mm. 
in sectors such as hospitality and delivery driving where they can actually earn more than they can in the in the care sector and that's actually a labor market working as it should the problem we have is that we really really want people to work in our care sector but we haven't got our heads around the idea that if we're going to retain to retain staff in the care sector we've got to pay them more Right. Yeah. So and if we, uh, and so therefore produce lots of money in order to pay them, which brings us back full circle. Which brings us back full circle because it's a service industry and and it doesn't it, it, it has to be the end paid for from the products of whatever um, goods and services we produce in the rest of the economy. It's not a primary source in its own right. So that. It, it, that is the problem. It's, that is, the, if you like, the problem of service industries more more broadly is that, you know, when um, households suffer squeezes on their income, better off households do, then the people who provide those better off households with services, including care for their elderly and for their children, um they, they they lose their jobs or they suffer wage falls as a knock-on effect. So that's also part of what's been going on in in the economy generally is is the effect of inflation which is to reduce people's disposable income have real wage cuts and really going quite far up the income distribution is that the people who are working in these kind of um, service industries serving better off households if you like um, really do feel the pinch so if the government was to say well okay we're going to solve that problem that we're not paying uh, a lot of the uh, public sector workforce enough particularly doctors and nurses and the like so we are going to pay them more we're going to you know we're going to give them that 20 percent or whatever to get them back to where they were uh, before the uh, before austerity kicked in would that be i mean that would keep more of them in the workforce that would get yeah. more people into that into that workforce as well that would solve some of the productivity issues that you're talking about because we'd get, hopefully get people back to work quicker but would it be enough to because all that extra money uh, going into the economy creating extra demand for stuff that might not be produced or is available couldn't that be inflationary I actually dispute that because what's facing um, doctors and nurses as well, public sector workers generally, and indeed some sectors in the private sector as well. And we have to remember that a lot of care work, that most care workers are employed by the private sector, not the public sector, um, is that they're actually suffering real wage falls. In other words, it, this, it's not nominal wages we want to be worrying about. We want to be looking at the effect of inflation. We have inflation. As a result, people's actual disposable income is falling. And so what they want is their way, their, non, their nominal wages to rise. Yeah. So to they keep out, yeah. so they keep up, right? Now, of itself... That's not inflationary. It's only inflationary if employers then respond to that by raising their prices, right? That's what we call a wage price spiral. Right. So, if, but that's yeah. not that. But that's not going to happen in but the public sector. Yeah, well, it's it, not what's happening. Yeah, well, it certainly wouldn't happen in the public sector, would it? Because mm. they're not because you're selling a service. At well, the end maybe we we'll go back to the same. So, prices and incomes policy, you know, tie it all down. Perhaps that's the answer. It seems uh, always the logical well, next step. Well, you see, I, I, we, we do seem to be heading in the directions of the prices and incomes policy. And I scratch my head and go, again, they didn't work terribly well in the 1970s. No. Shadow, shadows of Barbara them. Castle in place of strife. Yeah. I mean, and there was nothing we but banned, strife. Didn't work, did it? And we abandoned them in favour of, let's hand it all over to central banks and they can sort it out, right? Um, and central banks can play with interest rates and, and other monetary levers. And it's all about money. And, and gov- all governments need to do is... 
um, keep the keep a tight rein on the fiscal finances so that the so that spending doesn't blow out of control, right? And that's kind of where we've been pretty much since the early 1980s. The only problem with that now is that in the UK we have a housing market which relies largely on variable rates, mm. um, very variable rate mortgages. They're either short-term fixes or they are uh, very actual floating rates. Um, and so when the Bank of England raises rates, um, the housing market takes a beating and an awful lot of middle-class households find themselves, um, find their income severely squeezed, not just by inflation, but also by interest rate rises. And so you get a really hard hit to aggregate demand. It can be really quite, quite difficult to predict and can trigger quite a sharp recession. And so the Bank of England has been treading extremely cautiously over interest rate rises. The biggest one it did was in the aftermath of the quasi quarting debacle when um, you know yields were shooting out of control and, and sterling was falling, um, when they raised it a lot more, when they raised it by 75 basis points instead of 50. Mm. Um, but it hasn't been the kind of sharp rises that we've, for example, seen in the United States. Yeah, um, and nothing trying- compared to what we, we did have all the way back in the 90s where... Uh, or the eighties. Yes, where, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember at the end of the at the end of the eighties when um, the Bank of England raised rates to fifteen percent. I paid them on my house, but we were. But actually, we were. So I mean, we, I, but my house was only worth fifty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, I feel like this is another discussion. But I mean, back back then, of course, you know, we we owed a lot less as well. Yes. You know, as, as a proportion yes. of, much smaller of, mortgages. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So what um, happens? What happens yeah. if 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 the government keeps on spending? Then, if they keep on spending more than they're taxing, so the debt keeps on increasing. What what do we do with that then? Because that's that obviously is getting issued as bonds, which is getting bought by somebody, whether it's banks or uh, commercial banks, or whether it's other investors, or whether it's the Bank of England, which is you know we're quantitative easing. Whether we get back into more of that, but say say it's not, it, we don't go down the QE road and it's just bought by people, so therefore. Uh, it's still in, the, and I take your point. I think what you were saying was okay. If someone buys those bonds and then you pay uh, interest to them, then that's still money that's going into the economy, isn't it? So that's uh, so it's it'll still get spent somehow. So it's still an injection. So should we just not worry about that? Should we just look at that that debt figure spiraling up and say, well, who cares? Because it's all it's all money still swilling around the economy. Just don't call it debt because that's misleading. I don't like calling calling it debt because mm. I do think it, for a sovereign currency issue, it's a very misleading term. These are fi- these are financial assets, so the savings of the private sector. Um, then they're, they're not strictly speaking, um, you know, uh, debt as such. It's more like a share in our collective futures. Let's put it that way. So it's m- more like diluting your shareholders by issuing a lot more shares. And the expectation when you do that, you do a rights issue, right, um, is that you are going to invest that money and you're going to grow your, 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 your company and eventually the shares will be worth much more. And that is really the expectation that we all have of whatever the government does with the money. It has a responsibility to say whatever we do with this money it has to make a better future for us. So we shouldn't if be calling it, it bonds, we should be calling them share certificates. 
<laughs> there are a lot like preference shares, really. Yes, I can see that going down well. But that's the point, isn't it? I mean, the, the government, as I said, you know, Jeremy Hunt, Rishi Sunak, they know this kind of thing. They know what this amounts to. And yet they seem to fight very shy of, of enlarging the debt, where everybody, it seems, or very large numbers of parts of the country are saying, yes, yes, you must pay these people more, particularly nurses. And yet they say, no, no, there's not enough money there. We can't do it. What are they we seeing? Have to, we, have to be, we have to be fiscally conservative. Yeah, but, but what are we seeing that they are not, or what are they seeing that we're not? Okay, I think a lot of this is um, setting out a, a political stall with the, um, you know, the fact that we are going to have an election within the next two years, um, and the people they are trying to whose votes they want actually are broadly speaking not public sector workers. Um, they don't want the Bank of England to raise interest rates too much because that will hit the vote, the, the, the middle class homeowner voters that they want. So in a way, what the government is trying to do is a prices and incomes policy targeted at the public sector, which is a very large part of our labour market. So it does have some price setting power. Part, so they're, they're trying to use the public sector to set um, a, a, a benchmark, if you like, for private sector wage rises, for one thing. And secondly, to stop the Bank of England raising interest rates too much. But if it's but if it's non-inflationary, if this extra spending isn't going to create inflation, why would the Bank of England be wanting to raise interest rates? Why would they but be trying to stop the that? The extra happening? spending could, could create inflation. Right. Um, like I said, it depends what you spend it on. I don't think myself, I, I think there's a lot of posturing going on here and a lot of appealing to a particular constituency that, um, is kind of back in Aus nomics, you know, with absolute limits on debt and deficits. And, you know, we will have the bond market will reject us if we um, spend any more and all this stuff, which we had in 2010, you may remember. And I think there's been a bit of that creeping. When we saw, saw some of that coming back in um, September last year, um, and uh, in a way it was an opportunity uh, and it played to these fears of we'll end up like Greece or we'll end up like Argentina. And there's been quite a lot of talk about us ending up like Argentina, actually. It's a little bit worrying. Well, yes. I mean, and, and, but the point being that we are a very different economy. We, ha we, we have a, a currency that isn't sub subject to perhaps the things of the peso, or now they're going to have one with Brazil called the sur. God knows what that will do. But we're not subject <laughs> Brazil, to that. So, so Brazil the different says things. they're not. <laughs> yes, well, quite... <laughs> But, but it's apples and oranges, isn't it? It's not, we are not the same sort of country. We aren't the same sort of economy. And this is kind of when people start talking about hyperinflation, things like that, I keep going, we're not the same, we're not that sort of economy. There, there really is very little chance of hyperinflation in mm. this country. Hyperinflation and high inflation are not the same thing. Um, hyperinflation is where everybody rejects the currency. They just don't want to use it. And they don't, they don't want to use it because they don't trust the issuer. If you look at Zimbabwe, Every time the government tried to issue, it tries to issue any money, they end up with hyperinflation again because everybody goes, we ain't using that. Um, you know, nobody believes that the government is capable of of maintaining the value of a currency. We they are, don't trust them. We are so quite, they don't use anything except the Zimbabwe dollar. Yeah, we are quite away, aren't we, from where people in shops in the UK say, look, yeah. we, we only take the US dollar. Forget that. Yeah, because there stuff. is confidence. Yeah, still, yeah, yeah. Confidence Absolutely. exists. So the US has got this spiralling debt. So they're, they're up to almost 31 trillion by the end of last year 9.7 trillion in the year 2000 so it's come quite away since then 3.5 trillion in 1982 so they are 
not paying their debt back just keeps on getting added to so is yeah, that modern the, rest money? The, world like, the rest of the world likes it and i mean is that is that saving is that modern monetary theory in practice what's happening in the united states it totally is in fact one of, one of the complaints has been made about modern monetary theory is it is so based around the united states and other countries have don't have as much monetary sovereignty the united states is unique in that it pays for all of its imports in its own currency. It's the only country yeah. in the world that does. Mm. Um, it has, so it has no foreign exchange risk. Um, and that the rest of the world wants its savings product. It produces the world's premier savings product. So that's what its government debt is. And as long as that remains the case, as long as they don't do something stupid like defaulting on their debt, which they are tinkering with, toying with the idea of doing again. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. they do it perennially. <laughs> they do. It comes up round, round about every four years. Yeah, that's extraordinary. But I suppose <laughs> so the point... No, no, not again. The point of you saying that they are, you know, their own sui generis, that there's nothing like them. They are, they are you know, the reserve yeah. currency anyway. Really? Does, isn't that the point, though, with modern monetary theory? It's built around the US. So perhaps it doesn't apply to us or, or maybe not even to the EU. I mean, who knows? It does. Maybe not quite to the same extent, but it very much depends how much monetary sovereignty you have. So the United States pays for all of its imports in its own currency, and it has the whole world as the marketplace for dollars and for US treasuries. Um, the euro has the, the euro area has a considerable degree of similar monetary sovereignty. It does pay for a lot of its imports in euros. Um, it's it, it um, the euro is is in demand um, around the world, um, and the the better um, government debt, so um, Germany, German and French government debt, um, and also the bonds produced by things like the ESM. Um, from the euro area is in demand around the world. In fact, when uh, with ECB was actively doing QE, um, it, it, they nearly ran out of, of German bonds. It was why the yields on German bonds were negative right the way out to 30, to 30 years. There weren't enough of them to satisfy demand. So again, we've got the same sort of, of, of monetary, uh, some of the same sort of monetary sovereignty going on there as well. And actually the UK has more than you think. Um, there are systems of swap lines between the between the United States and the Euro, the major central banks, um, which means that you know even if we have to pay for things in dollars, we're not going to run out of them because we'll just swap the um, Bank of England will swap some money with the with the Fed yeah. to get some more dollars. So you know it, it, the countries that have those kinds of relationships between each other are much less likely to run into difficulties funding their external position, their 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 import bill. Which is our biggest risk, really, is that we wouldn't be able to pay for our imports. So, is it? Is it? Do we, the question is why we? Why is it not more widely accepted then? Why do we have this idea of fiscal conservatism, which is you know, which is practiced on both sides of politics? You know, in fact, you know, the Labour Party are there saying, "Hey, we're we're just as we're more fiscally conservative." Yeah, well, that's because they want to get elected. Because they want to get elected. So, yeah. it's seen as being a vote. No, no, it's very easy to explain, isn't it? How money is like a household budget, which is the way they like yeah, politicians. Yeah, I, like I think that's a lot of it. it, it people find it easy to get their heads around because yeah. they have to budget that. That way in their households and so they they think well it i, I understand that when you no know, when the, somebody talks about max we've maxed out our credit card mm. they understand that mm. when you say well actually the government doesn't really have a yeah. credit card or a limit on it it 
you know. If, um, if only when I buy a new car, I could say, no, the Bank of England will pay for that. That's fine. Yeah, it, it does <laughs> seem like a free lunch. And my point, and actually the key point of, um, of MMT, is that it's not a free lunch, but you have to stop thinking about money. It's kind of the opposite, in a way, of um the monetarist approach, which says it's all about money, and there you end up with debt limits and things like that. You've got to keep your fiscal position under control because otherwise the central bank can't control inflation and so forth. And then she turns that around and says it's not actually about the quantity of money in circulation. It is about the real resources of your economy and whether um, the real resources of your economy, your 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 energy, your raw materials, your people, um, particularly your people. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's actually no point in having somebody capable yeah, of, of deploying that yeah. money in a way that grows the economy and makes gives us all a more prosperous future. Because if they if it can't, then what you'll end up with is inflation, and therefore the constraint on government spending is not the size of the debt or the deficit or the quantity of money in circulation. So central banks come into this as well. It is inflation. Now actually you can see here I'm actually getting quite close to where central banks are saying actually what we need to control is inflation. We will have the quantity of money in circulation that maintains inflation at a low stable rate, enough to keep the economy growing, but not so much that it starts spiraling out of control. We need to bring, yeah, we need to bring the fiscal view of the of the world finances into the same framing. Really. It's a, we could talk forever. Well, and, indeed, and, and Francis, you did a magnificent job in explaining MMT, even to me. Um, and, and he's a slow learner, generally. I, oh, you've no idea. And he's a neoliberal, as we said earlier. Yeah, so. that's right. A new label. That's no. right. I'm going to go and get a nice blue tie to put on now. Just taking the position. <laughs> Good to talk, Francis. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure. It's interesting she said she was 90% uh, supporter or advocate of MMT. I think, uh, yeah, yes. I mean, there are gaps. There's holes the in the job thinking. guarantee thing is a, is a dodgy one in my mind. Well, work. yeah, government created jobs. Yes, that sounds things. ever so slightly Soviet to me. But uh, Well, even just thinking about work for the dole schemes mm, and stuff, you know, mm. where you just get a... But yeah, in the Soviet EU, we got a job that's yeah. completely useless yes, just you, so you're not an unemployed yes, statistic. We pretend to work, you pretend to pass. That was the deal. <laughs> but speaking of the, the Soviets, things, well... well that, there's these segues. Just do fall into I place, know, don't they? I yeah. know, because next week we're going to be talking about, well, some would say what is still, in many ways, at least in spirit, the Soviet Union, of course, well, Soviet Russia. aspirations, anyway. Certainly, and yeah. under Putin is a man of the Soviet Union to his very fingernails. Um, and yeah, we're going to look at the Thor is coming in the sense of the weather, at least. The tanks are now heading towards Ukraine from Germany, Poland, and elsewhere, and indeed the UK. So, what is it going to look like when the snow goes, things dry out, and the spring offensives begin? This is almost exactly a year since the first major land war in Europe since 1945 began. Where are we? Where is it going? Yeah, what is the end game? I mean, even if we supposedly won, whatever that we, looks... We? We? Well, well uh, yeah. Well, it's the world <laughs> against Russia, isn't it? Mm, let's, say, let's say it's NATO and bits of Europe and the US, but yes, OK. <laughs> uh, but if Russia loses, let's put it that way, yeah. what do they do then? Well, all sorts of apocalyptic predictions, and we don't know a way out of it that doesn't seem to portend something fairly disastrous. But we'll we'll dissect all that, and mm. we'll come up with some answers, I hope, yep. next when week. we're back next week with on, on The, the Y Curve. Curve. See you then. The Y Curve.